Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to have you with us another Monday evening, where we continue our reflections into the richness of our faith. Uh, we have hit the pause button on all of the great Christian thinkers to uh, talk the stuff of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, it looks like we are going to be devoting three weeks to the Reformation. Last week, what we did was just really uh, lay the foundation, huh? We considered some things historically, along with some key pieces to the mindset that Martin Luther himself was in, so as to better understand why the Reformation itself took place. We are going to continue uh, our treatment of both history and Martin Luther as we move through the Reformation itself, and uh, the impact he had upon maybe some of the figures we are familiar with, names you've heard before, John Calvin, Holdrick Zwingli, and others. And it is Monday evening, so I will be having this conversation and dialogue with John O'Hare. John, great to have you with me another evening. Thank you, Joe. Nice to be here again. So, John, here we are, the Reformation Part 2, if you will. And uh, certainly we talked about some important pieces, uh, and what we want to do moving forward is uh, grab hold of more or less where we left off, specifically on the hills of what happened uh, in his encounter with Johannes Eck, uh, this all-important meeting that took place in 1519, where out from that meeting, uh, Martin Luther found himself in such opposition with the Catholic Church, in particular with the emphasis on Scripture alone that he realized in his own consciousness he could not be Catholic anymore. So he writes these treatises, which we'll talk about today, along with the impact that these treatises had. Just to go back a few dates, and by the way, understanding history helps us understand where we are today. I yes, mean, we're, we're here because of what happened before. Yes, so and, important. Yeah, so, so important. Yeah, it is. And um, anyway, just to go back, 1517 was the 95 Thesis on the uh, Wall, and then the uh, Leipzig Disputations with Eck was 1519, two mm -hmm. years later. Uh, Martin Luther King was a Catholic priest, and right around 1519, with the disputation, I think he's beginning to say, I'm not really part of this anymore. Mm -hmm. And hassles from the church begin to come. Now, by 1520, he is getting so much issues that he writes, uh, he, he writes three theological uh, pieces in mm -hmm. the, uh, the fall of 1520. Mm -hmm. He's excommunicated in a bowl, I believe, called Excurge Domine. Yes. And then in December of 1520, I believe in public, he burns Exerge Dormine and canon law books. Mm -hmm. So here is quite a statement. Mm -hmm. So after that, we then have the Diet of Worms. Diet means day in German, but anyway, in the city of Worms. And there, Charles V, uh, he's excommunicated. And once you're excommunicated, you uh, capital punishment is a certain possibility. However, Martin Luther is a college professor at Wittenberg. And the, that's in the city, that, that's in the province of Saxony. And Frederick the Wise, he's the elector who runs Saxony, allows him to come back in and protects him. Therefore, Martin Luther is untouchable as long as he is inside the confines of Saxony. 
and he retreats, and he begins to do some writing. So that's where we leave him off around 1521. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, uh, he is a celebrity for sure, and the, the Reformation is being pushed by people, and a lot of it the push is coming from priests and monks, German priests and monks largely, who are just kind of fed up with aspects of the Catholic Church, and they want to see change. Mm -hmm. Now, we saw a little bit of this after Vatican II, you know, people who were upset, uh, clergymen among them, I think what happened at Catholic University in 1967, that, you know, th this was not uncommon, you know, it happened here, yeah. and pretty soon we have quite a, uh, a to-do, and the Catholic Church, I think, thought it could write it out because it had a huge issue with Arianism around the thir uh, 300, mm -hmm. and it was successful eventually in overcoming that, and they thought they could overcome this. Without, it was without a major split, of right, course. Right, without so. a major split, mm -hmm. but that, that did not happen. John, you mentioned the three treatises, and I want to pause there and at least touch upon these, because they are so important to the story of the Reformation itself. Uh, what were these about? Well, the first was a denial on the authority of the Catholic Church and the role of the Pope, right? Last week we talked about the selling of indulgences. This was his point of contention, among others. So, he sees the Catholic Church and the authority of the Pope, and he simply does not agree with it because he doesn't see it in Scripture. Now, you and I have both talked about some of the important Scripture passages that we have that speak to, uh, foundationally, Christ establishing Peter as the first Pope, right? Matthew chapter 16, verses 16, 17, 18, and following, where we have the great confession of faith coming from Peter. And what does Christ say to Peter? I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And he's echoing um, Isaiah uh, 22 there, where Hezekiah was giving uh, the keys to Eliakim. So he's establishing a, a prime minister to oversee the church. Well, because of what happened with the indulgences and the corruption that he saw, he was not going to have any of that. So um, how about uh, the second uh, treatise? This focused on him rejecting four of the sacraments. Now, he still accepted baptism, the Eucharist, and penance, and the sacrament of confession. Now, this is interesting because Martin Luther believed, just not in baptism, but in the sacrament of confession and the Eucharist. In fact, we're going to talk about Huldrych Zwingli a little bit later. He had a debate with Zwingli in 1529 on the Eucharist, because Wingley felt that the Eucharist was just a commemorative meal. No, he believed in the true presence of Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And this was very important to Luther's theology. Uh, he did not reject that sacrament. And how about confession? Isn't that interesting? You know, the sacrament of confession is something that I know many Protestants struggle with, and I've had great conversations with many out there. And what I share with them is that Martin Luther himself believed in the importance of uh, going to a priest and uh, receiving that absolution in the sacrament of confession. So uh, the third piece here, and of course this was his last treatise because of what he did, <laughs> he called the princes of Germany to rise up and to start their own national church. You touched upon it there, John, earlier, which they were what? Glad to do because they were eager to escape the authority and taxation from Rome. So a very important practical historical point there as well. Now, just by way of a theological footnote, it's really interesting, John, when you look at what Martin Luther did as it relates to establishing this national church. What makes 
the New Testament so unique? What makes the word Catholic so illuminating? Well, it's tied to this word national. Why? The word Catholic comes from the Greek katholike. It was a word that was first coined by St. Ignatius of Antioch in 105 AD. We talked about this maybe a year ago now, huh, John? Katholike, universal. Well, what was universal? What do you apply it to to talk about? But the new covenant. It's no longer a national covenant marked by Passover, but a universal covenant marked by the new Passover, Jesus Christ, who has shed his blood for the whole world in the new covenant, right? So it's interesting that Martin Luther would call for this national church, and in doing so, it's almost as if he regresses back to the Old Testament understanding of church. Huh? And another footnote, in the Hebrew, the word for church is kehal. It translates assembly of believers. The Greek ekklesia that I had mentioned earlier from Matthew 16, verses 16, 17, 18, and following, uh, also translates as assembly of believers. Christ was establishing the new kahal, the new ecclesia, the new covenant church. It had a figure of authority in Peter, and it was going to be soaked in the blood of the New Testament, the new covenant, the Eucharist. So all uh, very important as we reflect into just not what Martin Luther was doing, but some of the things we ought to be thinking about as it relates to the Catholic faith. I'm going to have to be a student here. You're going to have to teach me a little bit. Um, just to go on a little bit, the Zwingli deal brought up beautifully Luther's problem. Mm -hmm. If Luther can go against the church, Zwingli can go out on his own as well, yes. which he does. Yes. Zwingli was a Swiss, and the Swiss live in cantons, and he wanted to pretty much kick the Catholic Church, particularly its statutes and all that stuff, out of the churches, mm -hmm. which he did gradually. Mm -hmm. Now, several Swiss cantons followed this. But there were also Catholic cantons in Switzerland, and they didn't do it. So now we have a political to-do. Let's go back to you being the teacher, because I, I, I have you on baptism and the Eucharist, but he eventually, I thought, threw out confession. Correct me if I'm wrong now, but I thought that Luther said, you, the individual Christian, can ask God to forgive your sins again and again and again. And... Whereas in the Catholic, you know, you have the sacrament of penance in which you go to the priest and the priest listens to you, and I assume asks to see how contrite you are because that's the essence of the forgiveness of sins. And then he, in the name of Christ, forgives you. Mm -hmm. But Luther just simply said, okay, that we don't really need a priest. Now, am I, oh, you better correct me because... Yeah, I, that's a, that, a post-Lutheran devolvement, if you will. Oh, I mean, okay. Now, John, to speak of devolvement, we certainly should speak of uh, John Calvin. John Calvin was of French origin, and after studying theology and law in Paris as a young man, he was suddenly converted to the principles of the Reformation begun by Luther. Eventually, Calvin would settle in uh, Geneva, Switzerland, where he combined the authority of the city and the church with primacy given to the church. So Calvin forged a model of strict and austere Christian life comparable to the discipline of the medieval monasteries. Um, Calvin's great written work, his institution of the Christian religion, this was the basis of the theology of his Reformed tradition. 
um, where Calvin rejected all beliefs not explicitly found in the Bible and focused his followers' faith on the Word of God alone, adapting Martin Luther's vision of sola scriptura. What really is unique to Luther, I think there's at least two things. His church buildings were always plain and white, you know, glass windows. All vestiges of Catholicism, except the Bible, were stripped away. Now, most of us know that Calvin's most widely debated doctrine was uh, predestination, claiming that God has predetermined from the beginning who will be saved and who will be damned. And of course, in doing so, apparently leaving no place for human effort, merit, or will in attaining salvation. So the problem with predestination in the end is to remove the free will, to remove our choice for loving God. We must remember, love always demands freedom because love never comes from without, but from within. And so freedom is at the heart of our faith and predestination essentially diminishes that. And by diminishing that, you diminish love. Now, as a whole, John, I think it's important for us to highlight that out from the Protestant Reformation, you are no longer dealing with the unity of faith, but the purity of faith. You see, Protestants will view the church that Jesus founded as an invincible spiritual reality comprised of all who believe in Christ rightly in their hearts, and not as a visible historical reality existing in, we could say, a unified form in the world as Catholics understand it. In other words, John, what we're talking about here is how our faith, our church, is both sacramental and historical. So if there were two catchphrases that really highlight the distinction and the differences between uh, the Catholic Church and every other Protestant church, it is the unity of faith versus the purity of faith. Excuse me, you can see the problem from Luther to Zwingli to Calvin. You've got three different outlooks on the faith which are, which are different. And uh, the Catholic Church has the one, coming mm -hmm. from the Bible, tradition, and then the magisterium or teaching authority of the Church, and uh, trying to keep that doctrine together, which the Catholics feel comes right straight down from Christ, unchanged to today. Mm -hmm. Well, once you now have three, you can have a lot. And that's, and that's what happened. Mm -hmm. And as they began to argue, we, we had war in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And Zwingli was killed in one of those wars. We had a peasants' war around, I believe, 1525, with 5,000 peasants killed. It was peasants with their pitchforks versus uniformed feudal soldiers with bows and arrows and horses. It was a massacre. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. as I mentioned last week, we, haven't had, we didn't have a rebellion like that until the French Revolution. But this was, French Revolution was in the city. This was in the open field where they didn't have a chance. Now, as this reformation continues we are beginning to have wars and their deaths and pretty soon we're going to have the, the 30 years war which ends in 1648 mm -hmm. and by that time there are no more religious wars and religion is becoming less part of the body politic and of society huge in point, 1787 yeah, we point. have the constitution of the united states in which we have separation of church and state hmm, kind of unthinkable in luther's time Nowadays, we have the irrelevance of church and state. You know, yeah. I mean, it really doesn't mean that much. Yeah, That's well where we are coming. You know, this is why history is important, because this is how these things, you know, that's why we're where we are today, because of what happened before. 
Yeah, it's an evolution of that devolvement, if you will. John, you had a, a line from Woody Allen um, that really, again, cuts to the heart of what we're talking about. We all know that great Reformation character, Woody Allen, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he had a maxim uh, about emotions. He says, the heart wants what it wants. Okay, the implication is that human desires justify whatever behavior they prompt. Mm-hmm. Hmm, isn't mm-hmm. that interesting? Little aside, I went to make a loan uh, uh, to refinance my house, and the uh, finance officer says, uh, Mr. O'Hara, do you identify as a man or a woman? Hmm. To me, that's an irrelevant question, but my desire. I mean, I am born a man, but what, what do I desire to be? Well, gee whiz. Now, mm-hmm. we're carrying desires almost to the point of absurdity. Yeah, yeah, that's an excellent uh, uh, point, John, because once you walk through that door... Or desire is truth. Yeah. <laughs> that desire is truth, and the I is the final arbiter of truth. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so truth is never to be drummed down to just what we think it to creatively be. No, it is something to be discovered. Last week we talked about faith in the context of gift and act. It is first a gift given to us by God, because we don't give the gift of faith to ourselves. But it is an act whereby we build up our faith, and that act is trust. Trust is the most concrete act and virtue of faith. That being said, as we talk about the act of faith, there is also something called the object of faith, what has been revealed by God, first and foremost, that the fullness of truth itself is the person of Jesus Christ. So the object is just not about something, but someone. Now, for all of this discussion on faith, John, it is important for us to um, pause And to go into Romans chapter 3, verses 27 to 29, in particular verse 28, because there we have a very important verse for Martin Luther, where he translates the text as, we are justified by faith alone, by faith without the deeds of the law. Now, what is Paul talking about in his vision of faith? Well, what we talked about last week, the emunah, right, in the Hebrew which translates in the English as the obedience of faith. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 1.5 and Romans 16.26, the obedience of faith, or the obedience that is faith, or the obedience that springs from faith. The Hebrew word emanah literally translates firm response, responsive listening. We go to God in faith, and He reveals to us in faith how we are called to love, because love is the response of faith. So charity is the natural outgrowth of our faith in God. This is why James says in his epistle that faith without works is dead. So we are justified by faith alone to the extent that we define faith as faithfulness. Otherwise, Scripture would contradict itself. There's a tendency to overemphasize Romans chapter 3, verse 28, and forget about the importance of the charitable act, huh? Uh, So we want to be clear on that as well. And certainly Martin Luther was influenced by the way in which indulgences were being abused, and we have to be sensitive to that. But it should have never led Martin Luther to redefine faith as something uh, autonomous from the charitable act. If I'm going to practice my faith, I have to do it in the company of others. Mm -hmm. I can't do it by myself. Now, there's lots of churches out there, but uh, why do I go to the church I do? Because of truth. I don't have time for anything else. Yeah. And when I put faith and reason together, that's why I'm here. Faith, what is faith? Go back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It is the belief in something I can't really put my hand on. 
but it's true. Mm-hmm. When we talk about truth, we, we speak to it in this absolute context. Truth is absolute, okay? But it abides in God's love, right? You lead with love, and the natural outgrowth of love is what? Truth itself. And this is why I've said before, and I could never say enough, John, love is the bridge by which truth shall pass. And so while every Christian denomination has some element of truth, as we have come to, John, discover, you know, and what God has revealed in sacred scripture and sacred tradition, yes, God is love, but he is also truth. And those two together, love and truth, are a, a symphony, if you will, yeah. from which the Catholic Church breathes her very life here in history. Yeah. Well, by 1648, theology was no longer the queen of the sciences. Mm, Natural also. science had replaced it. Yes. And that is now the queen of universities today. And what does natural science teach you, the scientific method? What is the material world about and how does it behave? Mm-hmm. And from that, we get technology. Thank goodness we have lights and radio. That's all based on scientific truths that we've made to help out human beings. But theology and philosophy are kind of minor things in the academy these days. Yeah, minor, John, because of what happened in the Enlightenment. You know, faith was replaced by experience, so now it's not faith and reason as the great crossbeams and girders of the intellectual tradition, but experience and reason, so faith has been crowded out. Now, I just said the Enlightenment, but it is important to note that the philosophical principles that were embraced by Martin Luther and those followers of Martin Luther really do lead to uh, the Enlightenment. So there's a direct link between the Reformation and the Enlightenment, because once you start playing with faith as something other than what it is, this great gift given to us by God, then you have a very slippery slope. So we have to be mindful of the importance of what faith is all about. If there's one thing that should come to us from a deeper understanding of the Reformation itself is the need to appreciate faith for what it is. Um, I'm looking up at the clock here, John, and we are out of time. I don't know if you had any uh, closing thoughts as we wrap up. As I look back on the Reformation, it happened, well, rather obviously, and uh, some things happened which were interesting, but I, I think in the end, what the Reformers wanted to happen didn't happen. It wasn't Luther's intention to have many, many, many churches, mm-hmm. but that's what happened. And once you go down that route of sola scriptura, I alone interpret scripture, you know, you're going to have a lot of different things. And the president takes an oath, I'm going to uphold the Constitution. There's only one Constitution. You can't have a bunch or you're going to have chaos. Mm. Yeah, John, it really does go back to that overarching proverb, huh? If you're going to feed unity, unity is going to grow. If you're going to feed disunity and disorder and chaos, disunity, disorder, and chaos will continue to grow. So um, it's what's before us when we talk about this relationship between the purity of faith and the unity of faith. Um, All right, John, we are going to continue this discussion on the Reformation as next week we get into uh, the Catholic Reformation, the Catholic response that, yes, was a number of years too late, but nonetheless an important response. All right, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you.